you. Welcome everyone to our QM Plus Live. We have a lot to talk about today. So let's jump right into all things IVDR. So Carlos, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your previous experience with IVDs? Yep, brilliant. Uh, hi everyone. So uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here today. So really uh, about myself. So I've started in clinical diagnostics uh, a while back uh, and my experience has mostly been within the, the national health system. So I've worked as a lead scientist for uh, transfusion medicine and organ transplantation. Uh, so looking particularly around some of the highest risk class devices, such as those in infectious diseases uh, and blood grouping. And I've also worked closely with the National Blood Service in the UK um, in their efforts to improve uh, clinical outcomes for transfusion dependent patients. Um, my last experience on, on, on the clinical side was really during the Ebola crisis where I worked at Guy's and St. Thomas's uh, Hospital to help them to, to prepare and respond to the Ebola pandemic that reached uh, Europe at the time. Since then, so over the past uh, seven years, uh, I've been really working at, at BSI, uh, so in the notified body, with specifically with the IVD team. And uh, I joined BSI uh, as a technical specialist uh, and scheme manager, and I was then responsible for a group, um, uh, a global group of technical specialists in my role as a technical team manager. So at BSI, really, uh, I've joined when there was still only the IVDD at the time, the directive, and uh, my role was to step up all of the all of the processes and procedures to go through all of the IVDR designation. And we were part of two uh, notified body designations, one in the UK and another one in the Netherlands. So PSI is pretty, you know, it's got really good experience in terms of uh, IVDR uh, reviews because we've, we've had to go through that process twice. Um, my role really has been around training the global team, the global uh, BSI technical team on how to do technical file reviews, CE marking. So we've had really to think about IVDR right from the start uh, of when all we had was a draft regulation at the time where we've also consulted on, so on the actual text that made it to the regulation. So there was notified bodies were asked to consult uh, on that text. And uh, other than that, I've been involved in uh, reviewing some of the MDCG uh, guidance documents that have been published, uh, common specifications uh, under the IVDR, which we're still waiting for, but hopefully we're going to have them uh, at some point. Um, and yeah, and since then I've been leaving uh, everything IVD, really. So really nice to meet you all today. All right. So then after all those years with BSI, why was RQM plus the right choice for you? Okay, very good question. So, Grison, I think RQM Plus uh, is a it's a very exciting project. So, uh, RQM Plus it's obviously leading the in vitro diagnostic space, but one of the things that was really curious is that through my work at BSI, I was able to witness firsthand the quality of submissions that were coming from RQM Plus, uh, because but on the other side, on the notified body side, which made it really really interesting. The other side to this is that manufacturers uh, in the IVD space, um, they face significant challenges uh, in light of the IVDR, which is probably the biggest regulatory change really affecting um, the medical device space uh, in recent years. So my role at PSI, in my role at PSI, I was unable to consult. So if you've worked with notified bodies, you'll know that there's impartiality requirements and notified bodies cannot consult in any uh, shape or form. And my decision to move to RQM Plus, it's aligned with 
where you know I see myself uh, in terms of driving safety and quality for in vitro diagnostics because it allows me now to help um, manufacturers and IVD clients in a completely different way uh, as I'm now able to help them navigate through regulatory hurdles. Um, so yeah, so I'm also, you know, it's been uh, an, uh, an amazing project so far. I've been here uh, a month, just over a month, uh, but I'm also having the chance to work with uh, ex-notified body colleagues. Um, so uh, the RQM Plus team is really uh, stepping up in terms of the, the resources that they've got uh, and being able to work with uh, ex-PSI colleagues is, is, is amazing as well. Great. So how important is it to work with the, an experienced consultancy company for IVDR file preparation? Okay, that's a good question. One of the things we'll need to think about when, we, when we're working with um, uh, a consultancy company is to put that into the context of where IVDs are at the moment. So notified bodies, going through the IVDR process, Notified bodies are really limiting the number of opportunities uh, a file has to go through the system. So a technical file has to be able to, to, to get C mark at the end of the day. And that's limited in the number of ways, for example, uh, through rounds of questions. So if you start, if you've worked with a notified body under the IVDR, you'll know that you'll have uh, three rounds of questions uh, to be able to get the, the file up to a standard that can actually be C marked at the end of the day. If there are questions that are unresolved, that file could be automatically refused and you would start the process again. So that would involve potentially a number of years before you can actually put that product on the market. So I think it, finding the right consultancy company to work with, if, you're, if, you know, if, you, if you need advice and help from a consultancy, it's really, really important because they need to be able to prevent any issues uh, at, at the time that the file goes to the notified body because there are a lot of requirements coming from the European Commission and from competent authorities as to what notified bodies can do or not and a few years ago you could potentially have seven eight rounds of questions before uh, reviews were actually closed and see mark but the limits are there now to three rounds of questions so if if any gaps cannot be resolved in that period of time um, there is an issue. So really uh, think about who you're going to uh, reach out to as your consultancy and make sure they've got the right expertise, they can support your device um, and your uh, individual client needs as well. Okay, great. So looking at that IVD space, what do you see as those top trends? Yeah, okay. Top trends in the IVD space. So I think if we if we, if we, if okay, we, we take need to take it a little bit into perspective. There are two things. So if we look back at um, the early uh, 2000s, the IVD market space was worth something around 25 billion US dollars. Looking forward to 2021, that same market is now valued at close to 120 billion um, US dollars. So that's been a huge increase uh, over the years. A key. A key topic that is really affecting this was uh, between 2020 and 2021, the IVD market has grown significantly due to COVID. Um, so if you look back, IVDs have typically hidden behind medical devices. Um, so they were not at the forefront of everyone's minds, but you know they've always existed. They're, they're a very important part of the medical devices sector. But I think what COVID has done and the uh, 
the pandemic uh, era that we're you know we're living uh, at the moment was to put that visibility uh, on IVDs. So a visibility that probably uh, IVDs did not have in the past because you know you know everyone is talking about COVID tests and everyone has an opinion on an antigen test or, or an antibody test and what accuracy means for PCR tests. So. That leads me to what I think it's one of the top, the, you know, the top trends in the IVD space, which really is the rise of infectious diseases. So over the past 40 years, we've seen um, a fourfold increase in the number of uh, emerging pathogens, uh, where you know some of the most important include drug-resistant tuberculosis, MERS, SARS-CoV, um, Ebola, and Zika, for example. And as we're living in um, increasingly mobile society uh, we're at a point where um, in, an infection can spread anything between 24 and 48 hours globally and we've seen that with COVID. Uh, so I think that's you know one of the real uh, top trends in the IVD space then followed by potentially the growth in the uh, older population and the rise of uh, things such as immunological disorders uh, and chronic diseases. We're also, there's a high focus as well, and I've, I'm seeing more and more uh, companion diagnostics coming to the market. So personalized medicine is also an area, an area of growth for IVDs. Um, and last but not the least, I would say potentially point of care and self-testing as we're moving to a health, a health system that's focused on uh, self-disease management. Okay, so thinking back on your BSI experience, what is the state of play of manufacturers' transition to IVDR? Okay, state of play of manufacturers' transition. So I think there are varying levels of preparedness. Uh, we've seen very large companies uh, with strong and large global regulatory teams getting it totally right. So we, we've had, you know, we've seen quality files coming through uh, right from the start. But we've also seen large companies really struggling to step up to, to the challenge of, uh, of the IVDR. One thing to take into account is that for most manufacturers uh, out there, it's probably the first time they're actually working with a notified body and they're actually interacting with a notified body. They've had devices on the market for a long period of time, but most of those, no one has actually looked at the files. Um, and it's the first time those files are getting scrutinized. Adding to that, the fact that only 5% of IVDs that actually need a, before the, the recent proposal from the commission, which we'll touch uh, later, only 5% of IVDs out there that needed an IVDR certificate by May 2026 have actually received one. So that tells you a little bit about the, the, bottleneck, the bottlenecks and the challenges that are uh, in terms of uh, at the EU, EU level. Um, in terms of um, the probably the biggest gap that we've seen in, on the level of preparedness is related to having sufficient clinical evidence to support um, the claims of, uh, of a device. So I think that's probably one of the biggest gaps. So I would say that the majority of manufacturers at the moment are not prepared for what the IVDR uh, is requiring, but there are there are companies out there that have really invested and they've looked at this early enough to be able to to address the big uh, the big challenge ahead. So let's move to that recent proposal on the progressive rollout to the IVDR. Mm -hmm. How does that impact manufacturers and their transition plans? Okay, so. 
two weeks ago on the 14th of October, uh, the, the Commission, the EU Commission has made a proposal for uh, to amend one of the uh, one of the articles in the in the in the IVDR in the regulation, so it is about Article 110, and what it does, what that article talks about, is about timelines for transitioning from you know previous uh, pre-IVDR to uh, IVDR, and what it outlines and sets up is a transition that's dependent on device risk, where highest risk devices would need to transition by May uh, 2025, such as Class D devices, and the lowest risk, Class Bs and A, sterile, for example, would need to transition by May 2027. Now, there's no change in the date of application. The date of application, uh, unlike the MDR, it's still the same. It's still May 2022, 20, uh, so next year. Uh, but what the proposal does is allowing a progressive rollout to certain classes of devices. So one thing to take into account really is that this is just a proposal at this stage, but it's a proposal that has a legal basis. So it is based on EU treaties um, and it is very likely that it will be incorporated into law but it still needs to go through a process of approval by the Council and the EU Parliament. And it's possible that the final text may change. Uh, what, what actually makes it into law, may, it's, it's possible that it changes because the process involves a number of readings and agreements, disagreements at, at the EU level. So it's possible that there's gonna be some refinements at the end of, the, um, at the end of it. So if you've looked at this proposal, I just wanted to call out one, 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 one item that's quite interesting, is that the proposal covers classes D, C, B, and A sterile, but there's no mention in the proposal about class A devices. And um, class A devices, they're huge. The, there's a whole market of instruments that would be class A. And for those, as far as we understand it now, they need to meet the date of application by May next year. So manufacturers of instruments, just be aware that if this proposal goes through, instruments still need to meet that date of application based on, on what we know now. But um, the other thing is that to take into account as well is that during, so after May 2022, because the date of application does not change, PMS procedures and vigilance, uh, they uh, all apply as per IVDR requirements. So both old and new devices will need to meet PMS um, uh, and vigilance requirements from May 2022 onwards. All right, thanks for that. So why do you think the commission pushed this back? Why the commission pushed this back? I think it was really the only option uh, available. Uh, so if you, if you think, so back in May, just to tell you a little bit of the story. So back in May, there was a group of um, stakeholders from notified bodies, um, uh, patient groups. So some some of the the cancer, uh, some of the the groups representing cancer patients uh, in Europe and also industry have written to the Commission asking for a um, uh, a delay. So asking for a for a, for a solution because they saw that IVDR you know, would not be possible uh, in time for May 2022. And that's because if you think about it, 70% of all medical decisions uh, that take place in the healthcare systems in Europe and across the globe, they're actually based on diagnostics. So you could be potentially uh, facing a situation where 
a lot of devices that are used to support those medical decisions would come off the market uh, by May 2022. If you add that to the fact that only 5% of devices that needed a certificate under the IVDR have received one, plus um, about you're waiting for, you're looking for about a year before a device can actually get C marked under the IVDR, if you add two and two, it just wouldn't add up to four. So uh, it you would be really there was a, a significant threat of uh, disruption to patient care in Europe, and I think that has uh, turned some heads around some ministers in Europe to look at it seriously and address the impact uh, such changes would have in the in healthcare. So with this uh, proposed delay, we'll say, does this mean manufacturers should put their IVDR plans on hold for a little longer? Mm -hmm. So I, so I think the uh, the proposal adds it's definitely a sigh of relief for for manufacturers, but I don't see this as an option to put transition plans on hold. So the proposal, if you've read it, is very much focused on stepping up. Uh, EU infrastructure whilst encouraging manufacturers to continue with their plans. So if you're pushing plans further down the line, there will be loads of bottlenecks again and you'll end up in a situation where you'll still have limited uh, opportunities to, to get your device onto the market. One key thing to take into account is that uh, from May 2022, as far as we understand it now, you won't, manufacturers won't be able to do any changes to design or intended purpose. So it's really important to understand the risks of what that means. So for example, if you've got a software type device and we know that software versions, they get updated all the time. Does that mean that each time you launch a new software version on the market, you, that would trigger an IVDR application? So something to take into account. The other thing is also around notified bodies. So at the moment, we've got six notified bodies that are designated for the IVDR uh, and 17 have applied, but only six have been designated so far. The others are, are in the process of being designated. Under the IVD directive, we had 22 notified bodies under the IVD directive, whereas now we're looking at potentially 17 notified bodies. Yes, notified bodies will be stepping up their resources and uh, they will they, they are recruiting heavily we've seen loads of notified bodies and adverts for for new technical specialists and so on to join their teams but one uh, one there is a key item here for someone that joins the notified body there is a period of training that they will need to go through before they can become a notified body reviewer or a qualified technical reviewer and that can take anything between a year and a half to three years for you to be uh, to be able to start doing reviews on your own uh, and see marking devices on your own um, and it is a process of training that will take time to build so even if we if we think that okay we've got a few more years ahead of us i don't think notified body capacity uh, is going to, going to ease in the short term so it's going to take a while until notified bodies can actually build their resources and be able to tackle the 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 ivdr challenge so i think it's not an opportunity to uh, delay uh, transition plans any further my advice is really if you haven't found a notified body uh, you should really try to secure a contract as soon as possible because I think everyone is going to be looking for last minute solutions and I think that's just going to be impossible if you leave it last minute.
So on the note of notified body review, are notified bodies taking as long to review IVDR files as they are for MDR, which we see around nine to 12 months or more? And yeah. do they have that bottleneck that you talked about a little bit already? Yes. So I so when I when I was at BSI, I can tell you that the experience from from experience, um, you can have anything for an IVDR review that will take six months to potentially fourteen or sixteen months. It really depends on the quality of the technical file. So two things. One is the quality of the file that's presented to the notified body. If you have a file that has gaps right at the start. You, you'll end up with potentially three rounds of questions um, and a lot of back and forth between the notified body and the manufacturer that could potentially um, delay the process even further. For a very good file, uh, so a file that is compliant from the start, that, that time frame can be shortened. But um, from experience, I've, I, so it's very rarely that I've seen uh, files actually getting approved within six months. Uh, it's more... I think the average is about is about a year for for a notified body, and then if you add, uh, for example, in the case of class D devices or devices that need some sort of expert consultation, it may take uh, even longer. So, I think, you know, best guess anything between six to fourteen months. It's something that you should aim for. Now, the only the other. I think, they, and this is really key to understand, is that that is from the moment your actual technical file review starts. So once you sign a contract with a notified body, the notified body will have contracts with all, all, all loads of other clients that have reached out to the notified body before you. So you'll be added to a queue. And um, if you think about timeframes, it may you may be in a position where the notified body cannot even start on your file you know, within three or four months, they'll you'll have to wait time. You'll have to wait some time before they can actually start reviewing your technical file because the resources they're building up, but they are not there yet to provide that immediate response. So factor that in into your um, time frame as well as you progress to the IVDR. All right. So what if I'm a manufacturer of a Class D device or a Class C companion device? Um, can I actually start my transition now if the EU isn't fully prepared for those high-risk devices? So you can. Uh, in theory, it's possible. And um, so for Class D devices, one of the things to take into account is that Class D devices that do not have common specifications, they, um, they need to go through a process of uh, expert panels. And expert panels have been appointed by the Commission and they are operational now. So that's the only requirement for Class D devices that's uh, mandatory by the legislation, by the IVDR, and that infrastructure is set up. Class D devices, they also uh, need to be tested by EU reference labs. So the performance will need to be confirmed by EU reference labs from the point that they become operational. So it's possible to place devices on the market beforehand if EU reference panel, if EU reference labs are not operational, so there's um, there's been a, a document issued by um, by the MDCG group and the Team NB um, document that talks about the position of uh, of notified bodies and the transitional provisions for Class D devices and what to do in the absence of EU reference labs being set up. So the idea with EU reference labs, I think there's the, the latest um, commission rollout plan for the IVDR 
was actually released today and they expect um, e-reference labs to be operational by Q1 of 2023. So that's still sometimes you know, away as to when e-reference labs will be designated. So we know that there's at least one uh, lab applying to be uh, EU reference lab. Uh, that's the PEI in Germany. Um, but I haven't heard of any others. I'm sure there are others as well, but certainly uh, one potential uh, EU reference lab uh, coming up. But um, so, so I'm, I'm, the reason why I'm, say, I'm talking about EU reference labs is that manufacturers will need to be aware that notified bodies um, at the moment they could potentially place a device on the market, a class D device on the market but some notified bodies may, may be risk averse and they may find they may not be prepared to take that risk themselves without the e-reference lab to be providing that extra assurance that you know existed in a different way under the directive for list a, a devices um, so it's just a discussion that you should have with your notified body whether they are prepared to take class d devices in the absence of e-reference labs the other side to this question is common specifications. So the commission is currently working on common specifications for class D devices, and that will include things such as syphilis, uh, Shaga, um, Kid and Duffy blood grouping, CMV, um, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, and these will add up to the previous, previously common technical specifications we had under the IVD directive, which were for HIV, hepatitis, and blood grouping, for example. And those are expected in Q1 of 2022. Um, so certainly possible to have class D devices going through the process, but talk to your notified body if they are prepared to take uh, those, those devices in. The other side of the question was around companion diagnostics. So for companion diagnostics, um, there, is some, there, there is some work taking place between notified bodies and uh, EMA. Uh, there's a pilot uh, of devices going through the system about how the consultation process between what the notified body sees and what EMA sees is going to work. So it's definitely possible. So speak to your notified body um, and um, make sure that they can start doing those activities with you. But yeah, to sum up, it's possible for both companion diagnostics, class D devices to start now. All right, so as we think about new product development for these manufacturers, do you have any uh, tips on market entry given the new timelines? Yeah, so for new product development, I think, now we've got new timelines for different classes of devices so i think it's really important to think about uh, devices in a in a holistic sense so look at your device portfolio and devise a plan a transition plan to the ivdr that's proportionate and is shaped around the different classification of devices and your individual product needs so you may have devices that have been on the market for a very long time you know that you're not going to be changing their intended purpose or their design so that you know that may be absolutely fine to make use of those timelines for new products really i think anything that you should be doing now should be with that ivdr mindset uh, in in place because you're very it's very unlikely that notified bodies um, as we go through this transition phase and different timelines will continue taking new applications for the IVD directive. So you may find some notified bodies saying, actually, we're not taking any new IVDD work. So just make sure 
you know, this is the time to move on from IVDD to IVDR and make sure that, you know, any new products are actually developed and implemented with um, an IVDR framework uh, in mind. All right, thank you. And I guess shifting gears a little bit, um, you touched on notified bodies setting the bar a little higher than they used to in the past. So what do you see or what did you see at BSI that companies were generally struggling with? Okay, so yeah, so definitely. So notified bodies are definitely stepping the bar up compared to what we had under the, the directive. So we all, you know, we all talk about these, but we all know that there's no grandfathering. And what's really important is that manufacturers need to find creative ways for both old uh, and new devices so that they meet uh, IVDR requirements. I think IVDR is a total different ballgame. So um, the requirements are completely different. There's a lot more requirements and notified bodies have responded um, accordingly. Uh, from where I, where I come from and what, I, what I've seen uh, at BSI, the biggest struggle is really around having sufficient clinical evidence. Um, and manufacturers are struggling and they're lost as to what to do uh, in the absence of you know, sufficient clinical evidence for the IVDR. We're also missing essential guidance on performance evaluation. Uh, so it's on the pipeline to be released by the MDCG group, but still we don't have guidance on performance evaluation from the MDCG. There's good documents from GHTF and uh, MedTech uh, Europe, but still we're waiting for that official um, communication from, from, from the MDCG group as to what the expectations on performance evaluation are. A lot of the legacy devices that have been on the market for a very long time, it may be really difficult to find literature or, um, or you know, sufficient clinical evidence that actually supports uh, their claims. So I think manufacturers are left with a question as to how do I demonstrate that this device that has been on the market for 20 years actually works? And, you know, where are my old studies? Have I actually done old studies? It's been on the market. So what do I do? So I think when, you, when, you, when you're faced with this question, you'll need to think about, you know, your individual devices. And if they've got a strong body of clinical evidence and they are well-established established devices on the market, sometimes using literature is absolutely appropriate. Um, and it may be enough to use literature. For example, if you have a device for hemoglobin, you know, hemoglobin, it's more than everyone knows that it's associated with anemia. So you wouldn't be expected to reinvent the wheel here and you wouldn't be expected to do clinical performance studies on hemoglobin type, type of device. If your device is already on the market and you've got good post-market data and um, literature actually demonstrates that your device um, is okay and it's got you know, clinical evidence. If you think, for example, of a more novel or higher risk device, um, then you would be looking at direct demonstration of clinical evidence. And that would need to be with clinical via clinical performance studies um, on the actual device that's being, that's being reviewed. One thing that I would say, and just to, to make everyone aware, is that you've got all your old clinical data it can definitely be presented. You know, there's no issues. Notified bodies won't reject old clinical data. But one thing to take into account is that you cannot call an old study um, a clinical performance study under the IVDR. 
because cl clinical performance studies under the IVDR, they have a set of prescriptive requirements. So you wouldn't be able to present old studies as a clinical performance study unless they meet IVDR requirements. So you would need to call it other sources of clinical data, which is one of the other pillars in the IVDR that is allowed to support um, your clinical evidence. All right, so let's focus on those requirements for technical documentation. Um, on the subject of clinical evidence, are manufacturers required to demonstrate clinical utility under the IVDR? Okay, that's a question we get asked a lot, clinical utility. So there's a clear distinction between the MDR and the IVDR when it comes to clinical utility. So clinical and patient benefits under the MDR, they're you know, very linked to clinical outcomes for patients. Uh, under the IVDR, the only aspects of clinical utility that really need to be taken into account are those that come from analytical and clinical performance. And, um, and that's basically everything that's related to providing accurate medical information that will enable, for example, a physician to diagnose, to guide treatment or select uh, further diagnostic testing. So, if you think of full clinical utility, you would need to think about concepts such as patient clinical outcomes to be discussed. And those are simply not possible with you know, most of the IVDs because they will depend on further diagnostic testing or other uh, health interventions, for example. So let's take the case of, um, I don't know, let's, let's think of a liver enzyme test, ALT. So it is a general uh, physiological marker for uh, liver function. And it would be virtually impossible to assess clinical and patient outcomes in this way because liver enzymes, they can be elevated in a variety of conditions. So, for example, hepatitis, cirrhosis, um, liver cancer, and so on. And one single test um, is simply used as a starting point to guide further blood tests or imaging like ultrasound, CT scans, and MRIs, and so on. So, the true assessment of clinical outcomes uh, are simply not practical for IVDs because you would need to know what the condition is and then follow that on and it's just not practical. So clinical utility under the IVDR is only required as it relates to analytical and clinical performance. So providing accurate medical information, nothing else. All right, so let's dig in a little bit on those analytical and clinical endpoints. So we see some manufacturers struggling to define what those analytical and clinical parameters are for their IVDs. You know, what is the notified body's expectation on this? Okay, notify on analytical and clinical parameters. So, okay, so, so let's start with GSPR9. So the IVDR is really prescriptive. So GSPR9 tells you this is what you know falls under analytical performance and this is what falls under clinical performance. Now, that's a, a list, it's not an exhaustive list and you don't need to meet all of those requirements. So one of the questions we, 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 I, we faced often, um, and this was at BSI for example, and I've seen the same happening here at RQM, is manufacturers of controls and calibrators, for example. You know, a lot of the, stuff on clinical performance is not really relevant for a controller calibrator. So it is about looking at your device and can I justify not having clinical parameters or clinical performance characteristics for my device? And I would argue that for a control and calibrator, that's not required. But for control and calibrator, you would be looking at things such as analytical performance. And uh, for example, you could be you know, looking at uh, reproducibility, 
stability testing for calibrators, things around you know precision and uh, metrological traceability, and those may be the only parameters that you need to justify. But it's also important that any of the other parameters listed in GSPR9 that are not applicable provide that justification. And it doesn't need to be a comprehensive justification. Sometimes just saying this is a control, this type of parameter is not applicable for a control because so and so, done. That's the kind of justification the notified body will be looking for. So justify any that are not applicable. Um, and also, you know, things, if you think about, I don't know, let's think about a, a hormone type test like cortisol, so which is uh, used as an aid in diagnosis of adrenal function. So you would typically not be expected to uh, have things such as negative predictive value or positive predictive value, because you're not looking to distinguish between disease positive and disease negative states. So this is only, you know, a cortisol test is only one of the few tests that you can, um, one of the few markers that you can use to diagnose adrenal uh, dysfunction. and. So it's, it, would, it may not be appropriate to talk about positive predictive values and the negative predictive values because it's not the definitive marker for those diseases. But you could be looking at you know, establishing normal reference ranges in, um, in the normal and affected population. So that's the sort of thing you could be thinking about. And also, you know, at the same time, you can also include others. So the list is not exclusive. So if you're talking about comparison of a device with, um, with a non-reference standard, for example, you can use things such as positive uh, percent agreement or negative percent agreement. So I think it's, it is about being a little bit creative and work with what you've got and justify that you've done as much as you could for your device. So as I said, in the case of controls and calibrators, if there's no clinical performance characteristics that are applicable, that's absolutely fine. So you just have to justify that that's the approach you've taken and that should be okay with your notified body. Okay, so let's jump ahead a little bit and let's talk about state of the art. So how should manufacturers approach state of the art? Yeah, okay, state of the art, uh, brilliant. I think that's a brilliant question. So I think what's really interesting about state of the art is that there's a, there's you know, over 20 references to state of the art uh, in the IVDR, but there isn't a single definition uh, in the regulation as to what state of the art actually means. So there's some good definitions in ISO 14971, um, and also there's a recent MDC, MDC MDCG document on COVID testing, uh, which is 2021-2, that has some good state-of-the-art definitions as well as they relate to COVID, but I think they can be extrapolated. But state-of-the-art really is about what is currently and generally accepted as good practice in technology and, and medicine. It's not the most advanced technolog technological solution, um, uh, so it's you know it, you don't have to have the, the best the best device uh, on the market to be state of the art, and it's not the best in class. But it's what is achievable for the majority of the devices. Um, and you know one thing to take into account is that state of the art will naturally evolve uh, over time. So for a manufacturer looking to start compiling their state of the art reports, you you know you'll typically start with a systematic literature search that will enable the state of the art to be, to be understood. You would be expected to include you know, references to similar devices on the market and also a review of their performance characteristics, for example, a review of 
you know, current clinical guidelines for that specific device type or for the analyte that's being measured. Um, and also the specimen type. So is the specimen that you're claiming, so let's say um, that you're you know, doing a, a test that's to detect albumin-creatinine ratios, um, and that which is used as, a, as an aid in the diagnosis of um, kidney disease. There are clinical guidelines out there that talk about this type of test and how it's used in clinical practice. So that's the sort of thing that the notified body will be looking for when establishing a state of the art and also your you know, specimen types for, for example, creatinine and, um, and albumin ratios. They're done in urine typically, and that's clearly defined in guidelines and so on. So it, that's the sort of information you, you're expected to, to be presenting uh, to the notified body. And saying that, so state-of-the-art, I think the other side to this is that state-of-the-art is not only linked to you know, clinical guidelines, systematic literature reviews, and so on, but it's also about using standards which are harmonized or you know, even better than harmonized standards, CLSI guidelines, common specifications, uh, and so on. So that's all you would need to think about when defining state-of-the-art. Okay, so let's transition a little bit over to post-market surveillance, if we can. And I have an audience question, if you're ready, Carlos. Okay, okay, okay. Yep. perfect, brilliant. So what is the expectation for documenting trend reporting decisions per Article 83? Mm -hmm. What's the expectation? So I think uh, really the post-market surveillance, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, um, one of those key topics in the IVDR. And in terms of trend reporting, at least on the IVD side, what you what you'll be looking what you'll be looking for is make sure you've got a good understanding of your device and make sure that any information that's coming out of the market it's documented. And for trend reporting is is going after that information and making sure it's captured by your your systems. So it's um, you're expected to document trends. But I don't think it needs to be as complicated as I've seen some manufacturers trying to achieve it. So the requirement is you'll need to, to document trends and make sure it, you know, it doesn't affect the, the benefit risk ratio and so on of the device. But there are simple solutions to how that can that can be done. So it is a requirement. Um, but I, you know, my mess the message that I really want to pass is don't go overboard on trend reporting. You know, look at trend reporting as something that needs to be done and achieved, but it is part of your post-market surveillance system and that will be that will be okay all right thank you and let's talk a little bit about pmpf we get a lot of questions on pmpf so what's yeah. the current understanding on this and is it required for all devices oh yeah so pmpf that's such a hot topic at the moment so pmpf so okay i'm going to be honest here i think really a lot of a lot of manufacturers and notified bodies as well are struggling to understand when PMPF is actually required. So I think there's a lot of confusion out there, and I've certainly seen that from my time at the notified body. We were being presented with PMPF plans that were simply a copy paste of the regulation, and were not trying to achieve anything other than just ticking a box. Um, that that mirrored the text of the in the regulation, so those usually uh, had some you know pushback from notified bodies because if you don't if you as a manufacturer don't really understand why you're doing PMPF then the notified body won't understand either. So I think there's two ways to look at it. So PMPF uh, is 
uh, I would say it's not mandatory. So if you've got devices on the market for a very long time, they've got a good history of safety and performance, the state of the art on those devices is unlikely to change, at least in the next few years. You don't necessarily need a PMPF plan, but that will need to be, you know, you would need to put a strong justification for not doing a PMPF plan uh, that would go down well with the notified body. On the other hand, if you've got a novel device or a device that keeps changing, so let's say SARS-CoV uh, type assay, you would be expected to obviously have PMPF studies because you'd be monitoring genetic databases, you know, changes in new variants as they come to the population, and all of those activities will be covered under uh, PMPF. Now, that's not to say that as notified bodies gain more experience under the IVDR, the interpretation as to what devices will require PMPF and what devices will not require PMPF is actually subject to change. So at the moment, I've, I've seen justifications and good justifications for not doing PMPF studies on legacy devices. So devices typically that have a long history of being on the market, they've been used for the last 40 years, state of the art hasn't really moved on in the past 40 years, you know, and you can you have these with, you know, liver enzyme type tests, all of the general physiological markers that you would go to a doctor like glucose and you will go to the doctor and, you know, it's the same tests that have been done over the past 20 years and still the same panel of tests. It's possible to justify not doing specific PMPF activities for those devices, as long as you've got triggers in your post-market surveillance system to start a PMPF plan should the need arise uh, to do one. So you would need to put that justification forward uh, and it's possible. But I would approach it with, go with the premise that you always need PMPF, look at your device and if you really think that you know state of the art is unlikely to move, that the risks of the device are well known and understood, then think if you can if you can avoid those PMPF plans. But again, because we're still waiting for guidance, you also may find that you'll find you may find differences from notified body to notified body as to how they interpret the requirements of uh, uh, what is expected under PMPF plans. Okay, and if we have just real quick a little time uh, about SSPs. So IVDR introduced the SSPs for Class C and D devices. Yep. You know, what should manufacturers consider when they're writing these SSPs? Okay, so SSPs is also another hot topic. So at the moment, there's no guidance out there for SSPs under the IVDR. All we've got is Article 29 that describes, you know, the SSP needs to contain these, these, and this. Now, there's, there is an MDCG guidance document for uh, the SSCP under the MDR, which is MDCG 2019-9, uh, which is actually a really valuable tool. And a lot of the requirements from that document can be extrapolated to, um, to IVDs as well, when it comes to stylistic requirements, to the, you know, the administrative aspects of the SSP, what should be on the revision history table, and so on. So I think it's got lots of really good guidance. But again, it's not enforceable because it's not part of the law. It's not an official MDCG document that has been published for the IVDR but it is a really good source and notified bodies will be looking uh, to see if you've met some of those requirements in that guidance as well. You can dispute them with your notified body, but they will take that as you know, the gold standard. And it's very likely that when 
guidance under the IVDR is published, it will actually mirror what has been done for the uh, MDR. For IVDs, one thing to take into account is that SSPs for self-test devices, you will be expected to write them in a language that's you know understood by uh, by lay users. And one thing that I've seen as one of the most common mistakes on SSPs for IVDs is with regards to describing the conditions of use on near patient tests, for example. So the manufacturer didn't really put put across what was a well-defined suggested profile of the users. Uh, so, for example, if you're you know if you're developing a benchtop type of instrument for using ambulance services or, or an helicopter. Have you actually defined your conditions of use uh, and is that part of your SSP and how you've assessed usability? So just think about who are going to be your end users. Are there doctors, nurses? Are they going to be done in emergency rooms, operating theaters, whatever? And make sure that that's defined within your SSP, that you understand the population that's going to be using the device and then what type of training they require as well. So those are some of the key, the key topics on SSP. But at the moment, the only official legislation out there, the official guidance is what's covered under Article 29 of the IVDR. Okay, and let me just put in a friendly plug that Carlos will be back for a webinar on November 6th, talking more about SSPs and SSCPs. So if you have questions, you can tune into that webinar as well. Um, we have one more audience question, Carlos. Yeah. So, from a, I think this is from a manufacturer. We are facing our IVDR audit in a few months. What do we have to expect compared to a combined ISO 1345 MDSAP audit? IVDR requirements, of course, but but what more do you think they should prepare for? Yeah, okay. So I think one, one thing to take into account is that that IVDR audit will serve to have a look at so depending on what devices you've got in your portfolio, you may have class, classes D, C, B, and so on, that IVDR audit will need to be taking a sampling uh, of all of the devices on a representative basis that will support your IVDR certificate. So for example, if you've got classes D, C, and B, the assessor that's going on site is supposed to be looking at those all of those classifications in order to support a recommendation for your IVDR certificate. They will also be looking at uh, you know, things such as uh, QMS procedures, making sure they're all, they've all been done as per the IVDR requirements that you're you know, preparing for uh, the May 2022 deadline. Um, and I think it's not, it's not going to be massively different compared to, you know, to what was audited under ISO 13485 and MDSAP, but you're going to have additional IVDR requirements. So for example, do you have procedures for generating a technical file uh, under the IVDR? Are they, you know, are the, those procedures uh, good enough? Do you have procedures for communicating with a notified body? If you've got specific types of classes of devices, for example, you know, uh, companion diagnostics or um, class Ds that require e-reference lab testing, are your systems required to? Um, are your systems developed enough to handle those types of um, uh, of procedures? But I think I don't think it's you know it, it, there's a, a learning curve and that you'll need to step up your quality management system. But I wouldn't say that is as complicated as getting through the IVDR technical uh, document assessment. 
All right, so kind of wrapping up here, last but not least, intended purpose, our favorite discussion. Yeah. <laughs> this is a very hot topic that leads to obviously yeah. a lot of discussion. So from your experience, what are three key tips you can give to manufacturers about intended purpose? Okay, so first to say intended purpose is literally everything. So, well, okay, one thing, intended purpose and intended use, just to clear that, is the same. So it's being interpreted as being the same. So there's no difference between what is the intended purpose or the intended use. It's the same concept. One thing to take into account is that when you're defining the intended purpose, so make sure that it meets the definition of an IVD. So for example, it would not be enough to say this is an assay that's used for the measurement of C-reactive protein, CRP. You would need to provide the medical context. So you would need to frame CRP in the context of sepsis, inf infection, and inflammatory diseases, for example. So make sure that there's a, you know, a medical purpose in your um, intended purpose. Then don't underestimate um, the importance of uh, defining it well, because it impacts everything from classification to scientific validity to state of the art clinical evidence so it also it will also you know it may impact the, your relationship with your notified body because you may have to go through a classification dispute if you cannot agree on what the um, what the you know what the intended purpose actually is for the device and how that impacts uh, classification it will also impact things such as sampling plans, the level of auditing that the notified body will do. So it has huge implications. Um, my other bit of advice is look at that document that talks about um, classification rules for in vitro diagnostics. There's loads of examples there as to what devices apply to what class of device. And you can extrapolate from those examples to your own device. And notified bodies use that guidance quite a lot when deciding on classification. So yeah, so intended purpose is key. It's all about telling a coherent story between intended purpose, scientific validity, clinical performance. It all needs to match. If your intended purpose uh, is, doesn't match your scientific validity, you will have a problem. So just make sure that there's a coherent story told through the technical documentation. And just a follow-up question from the audience on that, Carlos. So yeah. with the new EU guidance equating intended purpose and intended with intended use, do you see mm -hmm. this clashing with the US FDA intended use definition? Yes, potentially, potentially. So I think uh, manufacturers really need to, to okay, so in, intended purpose, one of the key you know, you'll, you'll have your global submissions and the intended purpose changing in one side, it's going to have an impact on the other, could affect global registrations and so on. Now, one thing to take into account is that you can, um, so for Europe, intended use and intended purpose is the same. You need to have that in a section of your IFU, but there's nowhere in the regulation text that needs to say your intended purpose needs to be under this section of intended purpose. So as long as you've got an intended purpose in the IFU, that meets the requirements of the IVDR, that would be enough. So, but just, you know, you'll have, uh, when we've gone through these at uh, the notified body, you will have questions from your notified body questioning why you presented your intended purpose in a certain way. But, you know, it could potentially clash with your global registration. So you'll be developing intended purposes under the IVDR that have a very prescriptive set of requirements and they need to be met for, you know, for CE marking and it could potentially impact your, uh, you know, what you're doing for, for the FDA.
So you'll need to come up with a strategy and talk to your notified body how you can minimize that impact. All right, so let's wrap up, Carlos. It was a great discussion. Yeah. If you had one piece of advice to a manufacturer starting their IVDR transition, what would it be? Okay, so one piece of advice, I would say, you know, if you haven't done so, try to find a company that can do some sort of mock audit or you know device file audit on your device before you submit it to your notified body uh, because you really you know you can once you start that process you can be in for a surprise and that just having the file rejected outright because it doesn't comply with notified body expectations so just make sure you've got someone looking at that file before it's submitted to the notified body otherwise you risk ending up uh, with a refusal all right, on that note, thank you to the audience. Thank yeah. you, Carlos. It was great thank fun you. today.